Hello, my darling, and welcome to today's story time. Ben Carter did a wicked thing, offering his guileless host so many drafts of the moon wine which the Zoogs had given him that the old man became irresponsibly talkative. Robbed of his reserve, poor Atal babbled freely of forbidden things, telling of a great image reported by travelers as carved on the solid rock of the mountain Nagrenic, on the isle of Oriab in the southern sea, and hinting that it may be a likeness which Earth's gods once wrought of their own features in the days when they danced by moonlight on that mountain. And he hiccuped likewise, that the features of the image are very strange, so that one might easily recognize them, and that they are sure signs of the authentic race of the gods. Now the use of all of this in finding the gods became at once apparent to Carter. It is known that in disguise the younger among the great ones often espouse the daughters of men, so that around the borders of the cold waste, wherein stands Gadoth, the peasants must all bear their blood. This being so, the way to find that waste must be to see the stone face on the granite and mark the features. Then, having noted them with care, to search for such features among living men. Where they are plainest and thickest, there must the gods dwell nearest, and whatever stony waste lies back of the villages in that place must be that wherein stands Kadath. Much of the great ones might be learnt in such regions, and those with their blood might inherit little memories very useful to a seeker. They might not know their parentage, for the gods so dislike to be known among men that none can be found who has seen their faces wittingly, the thing which Carter realized even as he sought to scale Kadath. But they would have strange, lofty thoughts misunderstood by their fellows, and would sing of far places and gardens, so unlike any known, even in dreamland, that common folk would call them fools. And from all this, one could perhaps learn old secrets of Kadath, gain hints of the marvelous sunset city which the gods held secret, and more. One might in certain cases seize some well-loved child of a god as hostage, or even capture some young god himself, disguised and dwelling amongst men, with a comely peasant maiden as his bride. At all, however, did not know how to find the Grand Neck on its isle of Oriob, and recommended that Carter follow the singing sky under its bridges down to the southern sea, where no burgess of Uthar has ever been, but whence the merchants come in boats with long caravans of mules and two-wheeled carts. There is a great city there, Gilath Lean, but in Ulthar its reputation is bad, because of the black, three-banked galleys that sail to it with rubies from no clearly named shore. 
The traitors that come from those galleys to deal with the jewelers are human, or nearly so. But the rowers are never beheld, and it is not thought wholesome in Ulthar that merchants should trade with black ships from unknown places whose rowers cannot be exhibited. By the time he had given this information, the tall was very drowsy, and Carter laid him gently on a couch of inlaid ebony and gathered his long beard decorously on his chest. As he turned to go, he observed that no suppressed fluttering followed him, and he wondered why the Zugs had become so lax in their curious pursuit. Then he noticed all the sleek, complacent cats of Ulthar, licking their chops with unusual gusto, and recalled the spitting and caterwauling he had finally heard in lower parts of the temple while absorbed in the old priest's conversation. He recalled, too, the evilly hungry way in which an especially impudent young Zook had regarded a small black kitten in the cobbled street outside. And because he loved nothing on earth more than small black kittens, he stooped and petted the sleek cats of Ulthar as they licked their chops, and did not mourn, because those inquisitive zoogs would escort him no farther. It was sunset now, so Carter stopped at an ancient inn on a steep little street overlooking the lower town. And as he went out onto the balcony of his room and gazed down at the sea of red-tiled roofs and cobbled ways and the pleasant fields beyond, all mellow and magical in the slanted light, he swore that Ulthar would be a very likely place to dwell in always were not the memory of a greater sunset city ever goading one on towards unknown perils. Then twilight fell and the pink walls of the plastered gables turned violet and the mystic, and little yellow lights floated up one by one from old lattice windows, and sweet bells pealed in the temple tower above, and the first star winked softly above the meadows across the sky. With the night came song, and Carter nodded as the lutenists praised ancient days from beyond the filigreed balconies and tessellated courts of simple Ulthar. And there might have been sweetness, even in the voices of Ulthar's many cats, but that they were mostly heavy and silent from strange feasting. Some of them stole off to those cryptical realms which are known only to cats, and which villagers say, are on the moon's dark side, whither the cats leap from tall housetops. But one small black kitten crept upstairs and sprang in Carter's lap to purr and play, and curled up near his feet when he lay down at last on the little couch. He felt relaxed, and his pillows were stuffed with fragrant, drowsy herbs. In the morning, Carter joined a caravan of merchants bound for Dilat Lean, with the spun wool of Ulthar and the cabbages of Ulthar's busy farms. And for six days they rode with tinkling bells 
on the smooth road beside the sky, stopping some nights at the inns of little quaint fishing towns, and on other nights, camping under the stars, where there were snatches of boatmen's songs coming from the Placid River. The country was very beautiful, with green hedges and groves and picturesque peaked cottages and octagonal windmills. On the seventh day, a blur of smoke arose on the horizon ahead, and then the tall black towers of Dilathleen, which is built mostly of basalt. Dilathleen, with its thin, angular towers, looks in the distance a bit like the giant's causeway, and its streets are dark and uninviting. There are many dismal sea taverns near the myriad wharves, and all the town is thronged with the strange seamen of every land on earth, and of a few which are said not to be of earth. Carter questioned the oddly robed men of that city about the peak of Nagranek on the Isle of Oriop. He found that they knew of it well. Ships came from Baharna on that island, one being due to return thither in only a month. Nagranek was but two days zebra ride from that port, but few had seen the stone face of the god because it is on a very difficult side of Negronek, which overlooks only sheer crags and a valley of sinister lava. Once the gods were angered with men on that side and spoke of the matter to the other gods. It was hard to get this information from the traders and sailors in Dilathleen sea taverns. This was because they mostly preferred to whisper of the black galleys. One of them was due in a week with rubies from its unknown shore, and the townsfolk dreaded to see it dock. The mouths of the men who came from it to trade were too wide, and the way their turbans were humped up in two points above their foreheads was in especially bad taste, and their shoes were the shortest and strangest ever seen in the six kingdoms. But worst of all was the manner of the unseen rowers, those three banks of oars moved too briskly and accurately and vigorously to be comfortable, and it was not right for a ship to stay in port for weeks while the merchants traded, yet give no glimpse of its crew. It was not fair to the tavern keepers of Dilathleen, or to the grocers and butchers either, for not a scrap of provisions was ever sent aboard. The merchants took only gold and stout black slaves from Park across the river. That was all they ever took. Those unpleasantly featured merchants and their unseen rowers. Never anything from the butchers and grocers, but only gold and the stout black men of Park, whom they bought by the pound, and the odors from those galleys which the south wind blew in from the wharves are not to be described only by constantly smoking strong fagweed could even the hardiest denizen of the old sea taverns bear them. Dilathleen would never have tolerated the black galleys had such rubies been obtainable elsewhere, but no mine in all of Earth's streamland was known to produce their like. 
of these things, thy Lathleen's cosmopolitan folk chiefly gossiped, whilst Carter waited patiently for the ships from Baharna. They might bear him to the isle, whereon carven the granite towers, lofty and barren. Meanwhile, he did not fail to seek through the haunts of far travelers for any tales they might have concerning Kadah in the cold waste or a marvelous city of the marble walls and silver fountains seen below terraces in the sunset. Of these things, however, he learned nothing, though he once thought that a certain old strange merchant looked very intelligent when the cold waste was spoken of. This man was reputed to trade with the horrible stone villages on the icy desert plateau of Lang, a place where no healthy folk visit and whose evil fires are seen at night from afar. He was even rumored to have dealt with that high priest not to be described, but he who wears a yellow silken mask over his face and dwells all alone in a prehistoric stone monastery. That such a person might well have had nibbling traffic with such beings as may conceivably dwell in the cold waste was not to be doubted. But Carter soon found that it was no use questioning him. Then the black galley slipped into the harbor past the basalt mole and the tall lighthouse, silent and alien, and with a strange stench that the south wind drove into town. Uneasiness rustled to the taverns along that waterfront, and after a while, the dark, wide-mouthed merchants with humped turbans and short feet clumped stealthily ashore to see the bazaars of the jewelers. Carter observed them closely and disliked them the longer he looked upon them. Then he saw them drive the strange black men of Park up the gangplank, grunting and sweating into that singular galley, and he wondered in what lands, or if in any lands at all, those pathetic creatures might be destined to serve. And on the third evening of that galley's stay, one of the uncomfortable merchants spoke to him, smirking sinfully and hinting of what he had heard in the taverns of Carter's Quest. He appeared to have knowledge too secret for public telling, and though the sound of his voice was unbearably hateful, Carter felt that the lore of so far a traveler must not be overlooked. He bade him, therefore, be his own guest in locked chambers above, and drew out the last of the Zug's moon wine to loosen his tongue. The strange merchant drank heavily, but smirked unchanged by the draught. Then he drew forth a curious bottle with wine of his own, and Carter saw that the bottle was a single hollowed ruby, grotesquely carved in patterns too fabulous to be comprehended. He offered his wine to his host, and though Carter took only the least sip, he felt the dizziness of space and the fever of unimagined jungles, all the while the guest had been smiling more and more broadly. And as Carter slipped into blackness, the last thing he saw 
was that dark, odious face, convulsed with evil laughter. And there was something quite unspeakable, where one of the two frontal puffs of that orange turban had become disarranged with the shakings of that epileptic mirth. Carter next had consciousness amidst horrible odors beneath the tent-like awning of the deck of a ship, with the marvelous coasts of the southern sea flying by in unnatural swiftness. He was not chained, but three of the dark sardonic merchants stood grinning nearby, and the sight of those humps in their turbans made him almost faint, as did the stench that filtered up through the sinister hatches. He saw slip past him the glorious lands and cities of which a fellow dreamer of earth, a lighthouse keeper in ancient Kingsport, had often discoursed in the old days, and recognized the terraced temples of Tsar, abode of forgotten dreams, the spires of infamous Thalarion, the demon city of a thousand wonders, where the idol and moth he reigns, the charnel gardens of Zura, land of pleasures unattained, and the twin headlands of crystal, meeting above in a resplendent arch, which guard the harbor of Sonanil, blessed land of fancy. Past all these gorgeous lands the malodorous ship flew unwholesomely, urged by the abnormal strokes of those unseen rowers below. And before the day was done, Carter saw that the steersman could have no other goal than the basalt pillars of the west, beyond which simple folk say splendid Cothuria lies, but which wise dreamers well know are the gates of a monstrous cataract wherein the oceans of earth's dreamland drop wholly to abysmal nothingness, shot through the empty spaces toward other worlds and other stars and the awful voids outside the ordered universe where the demon sultan Azathoth gnaws hungrily in chaos, amid pounding and piping and the hellish dancing of the other gods. Blind, voiceless, tenebrous, and mindless, with their soul and messenger, Nilarthotep. Meanwhile, the three sardonic merchants would give no word of their intent, though Carter well knew that they must be leagued with those who wish to hold him from his quest. It is understood in the land of a dream that the other gods have many agents moving among men, and all of those agents, whether wholly human or slightly less than human, are eager to work the will of those blind and mindless things in return for the favor of their hideous soul and messenger, the crawling chaos, Nilarthotep. So Carter inferred that the merchants of the humped turbans, hearing of his daring search for the Great Ones in their castle on Kadath, had decided to take him away and deliver him to Nilarthotep for whatever nameless bounty might be offered for such a prize. What might be the land of those merchants in our known universe or in the eldritch spaces outside? Carter had no guess for this, nor could he imagine 
that what hellish place they could meet the crawling chaos and give him up and claim their reward. He knew, however, that no beings as nearly human as these would dare approach the ultimate knighted throne of the demon Azathoth in the formless central void. At the set of sun, the merchants licked their excessively wide lips and glared hungrily, and one of them went below and returned from some hidden and offensive cabin with a pot and a basket of plates. Then they squatted close together beneath the awning and ate the smoking meat that was passed around. But when they gave Carter a portion, he found something very terrible in the size and shape of it. He turned even paler than before and cast that portion into the sea when no eye was on him. And again he thought of those unseen rowers beneath and of the suspicious nourishment from which their far too mechanical strength was derived. It was dark when the galley passed betwixt the basalt pillars of the west, and the sound of the ultimate cataract swelled portentous from ahead, and the spray of that cataract rose to obscure the stars, and the deck grew damp, and the vessel reeled in the surging current of the brink. Then with a strange whistle, and a plunge, the leap was taken, and Carter felt the terrors of nightmare as earth fell away, and the great boat shot silent and comet-like into planetary space. Never before had he known what shapeless black things lurk and caper and flounder all through the ether, leering and grinning at such voyagers as may pass and sometimes feeling about with slimy paws when some moving object excites their curiosity. These are the nameless larvae of the other gods, and like them are blind and without mind, and possessed of singular hungers and thirsts. And this, my darling, ends our story time for today. As always, I hope that you have very sweet and creepy dreams. Good night.